Most of us here drive cars. So you've, uh, but there are a couple people here that haven't driven cars yet, or have and don't have their license yet. I'll put it that way. <laughs> and so I'm not discluding you guys here because you'll know what I'm talking about before too long. We all got our license, I think, at one time, right? Everybody here drives. So we got that license at one time, and we know that when we got that license, and the very first time that we ever drove by ourselves, do we remember that? We got in there in that car, and we straightened that mirror. We were very careful, made sure we buckled up, made sure that everything was just right, and we're driving down the uh, road, and we are not breaking the speed limit at all, and we're stopping at the stop sign, and we're looking both ways, we're being very careful, and then we pull out really careful, and we're just so careful, and we're, we're kind of afraid. You know, it's kind of neat to be independent, but it's kind of, kind of fearsome sometimes, because you don't know what's going to happen. This is the first time I've done this by myself. It's really neat, but it's scary. And then about a year later, how much it changes. We're driving down the road with one hand, got a cell phone in the other, and uh, we've got a drink that we're picking up here and eating a McDonald's hamburger while we're driving along, sometimes without any hands and maybe with the knees, you know. We're really good. We have gotten so good, we don't even need to pay attention, do we? (laughs) That's called overconfidence. And we know if you continue to do that, you will probably have a wreck before too long. And uh, that's usually what happens. Take heed lest you fall. <laughs> and that's our message today. Good way to start the new year, isn't it? Take heed lest you fall. We, we're continuing on in the, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, you know, in 1 Corinthians, there are uh, issues <laughs> in Corinth. Did they have issues there? Boy, do they ever. Did they ever. Do, they have, do we have issues in the body of Christ today? Yes, we do. Uh, we're currently in a passage. Well, we're going to be starting chapter 10 today. Uh, it seems like it's forever since the last time we were in Corinthians, wasn't it? We've been doing a, a kind of Christmas messages. But uh, chapter 10 consists of a flow of Christian liberty. And we know that we have liberty as Christians. And then we got into chapter 9. It's 8, 9, and 10 are the chapters that connect together. In chapter 9, you have an illustration that Paul puts forth. He illustrates what he's been talking about. Don't overuse your liberties. and So he shows his own life, his own lifestyle, and he tells them, here's what I've done, and I'm not even taking money from you uh, so that I would not cause a stumbling block. Is he free to take it? Yes, he is. But for the sake of the gospel, he chose not to, and in many areas that's the way he is because he does not want to be stumbling people over, and he's disciplined himself by... uh, not abusing his liberties. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as we've gone from 8 to 9 to 10, they just kind of group together. And that is always helpful when you're studying a book. You know what's happening in the context. So what we're going to see now is not only an illustration of what we saw last time with Paul, but now he's going to use another further illustration to make this complete and is going to use the nation of Israel. And they are used often in the New Testament as examples. And this is that famous uh, chapter that deals with Israel was our example. Um, In the wilderness, they were an example for us today. And you say, oh, in the wilderness. I remember when they were out there. They weren't the best out there. (laughs) And so that is the example we're going to look at. He is going to show that spiritually privileged people 
very privileged people, can take for granted the privileges that are given them and they can abuse them. And then what's next? To fall right into horrid sin. And that's what they did. And uh, we know that they were disqualified as a whole to represent God as the priest. Did you know there were really only two people that really that came from the original that entered into the promised land? I'm telling you, two people out of two million, the percentage is not good. Not good at all. They had become overconfident in their faith. And this is a warning to uh, the children there in the church at Corinth. They fell into temptation. They become self-deceived. And they endangered their own spiritual lives. And that's why he's saying not only is the Old Testament good for the Corinthians, but it also would convert to us today 2,000 years after Paul wrote this to the Corinthians. And here we are. The Old Testament history exposes the failures, the sins of people who disobeyed the will of God. And as always, when people disobey the, uh, the Word of God, uh, the illustrations will come forth to show that um, there is quite a fall. It's disastrous. So the title of this message comes from verse 12, which everybody is familiar with. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. That's the sum of this whole section, I believe. Chapters 8, 9, and 10. I think this little verse 12 is really what's about. Take heed, lest you fall. Uh, It's a warning. All of us always need to have that. Um, This is for all our instruction. I think it, it behooves us to pay attention here to what happens to people who start disobeying God. They don't intend to from the outset, but if they're not careful, if they're not watching, they certainly can. And we don't want to repeat those same mistakes of Israel, do we? Of course not. Well, let's uh, tie in to chapter 10 here. And, uh, you know, sometimes I read a, a, a section... And then we take that and we just go into that section and then we read another section and we go into that. Well, let's all stand and let's read this whole section because it, it just flows together. And let's honor God's Word here. Chapter 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands 
Take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Father, we look at Your Word today. And may Your Spirit guide us into Your truth. Uh, May You use the mouth that is being used today to bring forth what Your truth is so that it will apply in our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen. Quite practical section here. Quite the illustration and then it brings to a close and says, here's what we are to do. Now the first four verses is dealing with the privileges of liberty. Uh, This section is really easy to outline. It's broken up very simple. Um, The privileges of liberty. We see in the first four verses uh, that the nation of Israel had. Quite privileged, quite blessed. And he names what it was. I'm going to use another point for that. I say the privileges of liberty, but I'm going to use a substitute also as I will use with all the rest of them. I can use this as a subtitle. The truth is dangerous. Now what do you think of that? Which do you like better? Well, maybe we can make a vote. The privileges of liberty or truth is dangerous. I flip-flopped all week of trying to... Which one do I want to use? (laughs) We'll use both, right? We can flip-flop. He said, the truth is dangerous. Well, yeah it is. For you're held responsible for the truth that God gives you and how you act upon that and put it into your lives. Um, If we don't handle the truth correctly and we have understood what that means, God uh, holds every one of us um, responsible for what we know and who we know, of course, Him. Uh, One can have every spiritual truth and yet not even be saved. Would you guys agree with that? I'm not trying to doubt salvation with people. I'm just saying it can go that far. People can know truths. They can even say, yes, Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. And they can even say, I, I, I trust in that. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they are really truly saved. They can say those things, but if there hasn't been a regeneration in them, it still will not save. Just, so just having knowledge like that, they will be judged severely. And Christians will be judged uh, severely at uh, the judgment seat of Christ if they have not paid attention to what God has given them. Paul already talked about that. And, and that, that's where 9.27 leads into chapter 10. As he starts off, moreover, in verse 1, when chapter 9.27, he says, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Even Paul knew that he had the possibility to be disqualified. We're not talking losing salvation, but we are talking about losing rewards or even worse, walking on this earth at this time right now, um, being in a sense, be put on the shelf. Not being used by God because of our terrible witness. And that is kind of what Paul is talking about there as he introduces now this example section. Um, And so Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of what happened to our forefathers in the wilderness. As he says in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware or ignorant that all our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea. Uh, first one is dealing with being delivered from bondage. And he uses the word fathers. And I think you can think of uh, 
all the forefathers of the faith. Of course, you think of Abraham and the race of Israel and then all the ones who believe like Abraham believed, which takes us in. So it takes in the forefathers to the Jewish people and then also the forefathers to the Gentiles, which we have now, and we can relate to that, as our father too, Abraham. In the sense that he believed God is accounted to him as righteousness. If we believe God, uh, like Abraham had faith uh, that God has granted us, then we're in the same uh, following him. So there are forefathers too. So as he talks to Corinthians, not only the Jews that are there, but definitely uh, most of them are, are Gentiles as he's speaking. And of course, they're no longer Gentiles. They're now the, the body of Christ as these two come together. But So it takes in all the spiritual descendants. If we were to look in uh, Romans chapter 4 and verse 11, where Abraham is being talked about and shown that uh, it was justified by faith, in verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised that righteousness might be imputed to them also. That takes in everybody, doesn't it? So there is a a father of the faith there to us all. So this can relate to Gentiles as well as Jews, but we go back now to the Israelites, and we recognize that they were in slavery for 400 years, over 400, and they were in total subjection to the nation of Egypt. Egypt was a pagan country, a pagan nation. We all know the story about how God miraculously freed them from their bondage. And it hasn't been that long since we were in the book of Exodus. As a matter of fact, it just seems like a few months ago. I guess it's we've been in Corinthians for a while, so I don't know how long it's been for sure. But we were in the book of Exodus and we went through all that, so it's probably still pretty fresh in our memories, isn't it? Uh, we know that they have supernatural guidance. And that's quite a thought. Um, when, when we think about under the cloud and through the sea, um, Paul writes here, fathers, all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink. They all did that together. They were in one, uh, they were in a unity. Uh, God is uh, guiding them. And they have a cloud by day, fire by night. And they knew that they didn't have to worry about where they were going or when they were going to do it because God was going to do it and all they had to do is just follow that cloud. Cloud by day, fire by night. Now that is great, isn't it? You know that wherever you're going, that you are in the right place at the right time. Do you sometimes wonder in your own walk, am I supposed to be here? Am I supposed to be doing this? Is this the time that I'm supposed to be doing that? We all wonder that. Because we don't want to do something that would be displeasing to God, but sometimes we just don't know and at this time, they, they did. Under the cloud, you go back to Exodus thirteen twenty one. I'm speaking very uh, fast today. Have you noticed that? Not so sure why. I can't catch up with it either. <laughs> I think I know why. We have a lot of material to cover. If you've noticed, those 13 verses are packed. Anyway, Exodus thirteen twenty one. Back to the time of the Exodus. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. 
He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. All the time they were out there, God always did that. Supernatural guidance. Now, these two pillars are like a hotline right to God. He's right there. He's guiding them. A hotline right to heaven. (laughs) Heaven is almost like right there with them. Uh, So, the Kabbalah, fire by night, uh, they went through the sea. He uh, led them through the Red Sea. We know about that. He opened up those ways. It caused them to walk right on through. They didn't even get their feet wet. God is just taking care of them. And this whole deliverance is a touchstone for all of the people of the nation of Israel. And even today, to them, as they celebrate the Passover, they go through this stuff to show what God had done. And to remember that God had delivered them out of Egypt. Look in Exodus 14.21. It says, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land and the waters were divided. Now, he had already told Moses to just stand back. Just stand back, hands off, watch this. (laughs) See his salvation. Stand back and I'm going to show you my salvation. Of course, he delivers him through and it's a great picture of salvation. It's what God did. Now, we move on to verse 2 uh, in 1 Corinthians 10. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Baptized into Moses. They were immersed into, baptizo, immersed into, placed into, identified with. And I think that's probably a good way to take it. They were identified with Moses and his leadership that came from God. They were all baptized into Moses. Um, They were baptized into identification with God. And God shows His self and His leadership through the person of Moses. So that's why it would say, baptized into Moses. Uh, Water baptism for uh, the church today is a significant sign that we have. It's an outward sign. And remember that, it's a sign of a spiritual union with Christ. Physical sign that shows the spiritual union with Christ. When you have baptism, we have what is called an ordination, or uh, we have, in the church is called other things, but that is what God has ordained for the church to do that. To show outwardly what is really happening inside. Communion is the same way. We have physical elements to show really what has happened spiritually. That's all they are. They're great pictures. And we identify with physical things because we are physical people. And that's a good thing. And even when we go to glory, we will have physical bodies. Somewhat like these, but glorified. Much better, right? Without the fall. Well, the idea of spiritual identification is what Paul has in mind here. I could go to Romans 6 and we can read through that. But if you'll remember, uh, that's where he's talking about how we're baptized or placed into Christ. And it shows our death and our burial and then our resurrection as Paul mentions that in Galatians 3.27, it's talking about being identified with Christ. We could go to Galatians 3.27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, and that's all Christian, baptized into Christ, 
have put on Christ. We have Christ put on us. He is in us. We're placed into Him. We're so identified with Christ. Well, these people are identified with God, identified with Moses. They're coming out of Egypt. They're becoming a nation uh, unto Moses and unto God. They're baptized in that sense through the Red Sea. What a picture that is of baptism, isn't it? And the Israelites were spiritually dipped into a union with God and with Moses. Moses' leadership. They are, they are what you could say are in solidarity. All the people, because you'll notice in verse 1, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses. Verse 3, all ate the same spiritual food. Verse 4, all drank the same spiritual drink. You notice the common word there? All. It wasn't just some of them. Or most of them. And there's a few people that just want to kind of get on their side and do their own little thing. No, they're all in this thing. Now, you'll notice the sustenance here found in verse 3 and verse 4. All ate the same spiritual food. And we know that God fed them in the wilderness. He gave them manna, didn't He? He fed them physically. For 40 years, He miraculously fed them. How do you eat out in the wilderness where there is no food for that period of time with that many people? Well, it's definitely a supernatural thing. God provided manna every day at the right time always. Look in Exodus 16, 15. You'll notice we're going back to Exodus a lot today. I wonder why that would be. (laughs) Well, Paul is coming right out of Exodus. And he's showing and reminding them. uh, Verse 15 says, so when the children of Israel saw it, this is the manna, they said to one another, what is it? And you know what manna means, don't you? What is it? (laughs) What is this? What is it? Manna. Manna. What is it? So they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And we know now that that manna was a blessed food from God. And don't you really wonder sometimes what that tasted like? came from heaven. It must have been really good. Tasted like nothing else that was on earth. But they got tired of that. Can you believe that? What God gave them? Oh, let that be a lesson though. Physical food. But it means more than physical food because we know that God gave them all that they needed spiritually. And He gave them all physically. He was the source, wasn't He? And they knew it. And He gave them spiritual drink. Well, they had water to drink out there in that desert. Remember, they complained, but God gave them what they needed. There's a significance there, too. It's not only physical water, but it's also spiritual water. The waters from the water of life. They're drinking from the Spirit of life. Drinking from the fountain. God is there. Exodus 17, verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. All two million of them coming out of this huge rock. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he provided them that that water. The spiritual rock 
as we go to back to Corinthians 10. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now there are some who believe that there was a literal big rock wherever the nation of Israel went, and that rock just went right with them just like the cloud did. Now God could do that if He wanted. But I don't think that's what we're meaning here. We know that this rock is Christ. Christ is with them out there the whole time. They don't see the pre-incarnate Christ. But the water, the food, everything is coming from who? Christ. Christ is that rock. And if you remember in Matthew, Jesus identified Himself with the rock. Matthew 16, 18. And there are a few different ideas on what this rock is, this Petra. And we won't get into that too much, but I think overall most people could at least generally say there is something in the sense that Jesus Christ is our rock, right? 16.18 I also say to you that you are uh, Peter. He's talking to Peter. And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen. Right? You are Petros, little rock, and on this Petra, this massive, huge cliff or great foundational rock, huge, I'm going to build my church. comes down to the very person of Christ, ultimately. We're built upon Him. He is the foundation stone of the church, isn't He? The very cornerstone. Spiritual nourishment is coming from the Messiah, even though they don't see Him out there. The rock is Jesus. They had a sustaining presence of God through the Messiah to fulfill the needs of the people physically and spiritually. He had His hand upon them. He guided them. I think that they had quite a list of privileges. Don't you think so? We just saw some privileges here in the first four verses. Now, we go to part two called the dangers of liberty. Did they have liberty? Did they have privileges? Certainly did. As much as they could possibly have at that time. So we're calling this the dangers of liberty, but like the other ones, I'm going to have a subtitle. Or you can vote and find out which one you like better. The next one that we could call it is sin is disastrous. Privileges are dangerous. Privileges are good, but they can be dangerous. Sin is disastrous. They misused their liberties. They became arrogant. And they fell into sin. And so we read verse 5. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. What an understatement. Did you catch just what he said? But with most of them, God was not well pleased. How many of them was he not pleased with? Well, really, there were only two that went into the promised land of that original. And that was not Moses and Aaron. Moses even blew it because he did not listen to God when God said it another time to speak to the rock. And he goes and starts hacking on that rock and showing a little bit of anger to people. 
God did not allow him to go in. We know did not allow Aaron to go in. Uh, if you want to go to Numbers 20, we looked at Exodus. We get uh, Numbers, which will define some details. Sometimes it's not found in Exodus. In Numbers 20, all about 8 through 12. I don't know if that will suffice, but we can start there. Verse 7, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give them drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded them. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and he said to them, Here now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? He's saying this with a slight anger, I believe, right? You rebels. And that's what they've been doing. They've been rebelling. Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. What did God say to do? Speak to the rock. Water came out abundantly. The congregation, their animals drank. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Humanly, I'm thinking, isn't that a little bit harsh, God? Moses has really been following what you said all along throughout here, and he just kind of blew it a little bit with a little bit of anger. Can't you give him a little break? No. God is holy. God told him to do something and he knew exactly what God told him to do. He said to speak. And he hits it. And so therefore God puts a judgment upon Moses. God is holy. So, God is not pleased. He's not well pleased. So what does he do? At the end of verse 5, but with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. The word is katastronomai. And it means to scatter out, to be strewn about all over, to spread about. That's what happened. There were bodies all over this huge wilderness. Over... Forty years. Bodies were scattered over the wilderness. I'm not saying they didn't bury them, but I am saying this had to be a vivid remembrance of all the people. When they saw those bodies scattered all over the desert, it was like they were potsherds, like pieces of broken vessels that were no longer useful. They were disqualified. It has been said, one commentator said that, I guess he got out his calculator, brought this forth, and knew how many people that there were there, and probably went for those 40 years. And he says, what a spectacle this must have been. It averaged out. It averaged out that there were as many as probably 90 funerals a day out in the wilderness for all of them over the space of those 40 years to cover the population. We know they all didn't die at one time. It was over that course. To average out 90 a day, of course you're not going to be able to attend those. You don't have that kind of time period. But we're talking lots, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. It's just like in St. Louis or take it bigger to Chicago or New York or somewhere. How many funerals are going on there? How many people die a day there in that kind of population? 
Well, that's what was happening out in there in the wilderness. And there were people just scattered about. That is unfathomable. Yet, the numbers work out. One author said, What a spectacle is that which is called up by the apostle before the eyes of the self-satisfied Corinthians. All those bodies filled with miraculous food and drink strewn across the soil of the desert with all their privileges. What a shock. I think that's a pretty good way to state it. That had to be a shock to see all that death going on out there with all the privileges that God had given them. This is real. We kind of forget about that. We say, yeah, the bodies were scattered out. But that was constant and reminded the people every day. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Run. Be obedient. Walk. The the Christian walk. Um, Verse 27 again, But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. And then he goes right into chapter 10 and shows what disqualified is. It all just links together, doesn't it? Many of the Israelites that were disqualified really became unfit for God's service. Look at all they had. A Christian is to control his mind, his body, his very lifestyle for one reason, to serve the Lord. Boy, Paul really really nails it to these Corinthians, doesn't he? <laughs> but so he does to us. Because he starts listening, uh, listing some sins here. He starts out in verse 6. And there's four sins. Now these things became our examples, a tupas, a type, so that we can understand what it is. It's a picture, illustration. To the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters, as were some of them. Let's start with idolatry, because everything comes from idolatry. All the sins come out of that. Uh, We know the Israelites had barely made it out of Egypt, before and, and and then all of a sudden they got into idolatry. They had just barely been out there and they got into it that quick. You know, Moses had gone up to the mountain and uh, received the Ten Commandments and it was 40 days and there they are doing their idolatrous thing. Now go to Exodus 32. We're doing a pretty good review of Exodus here today, aren't we? Exodus 32, verse 4. And he received the gold. Now, this is Aaron. Just in in short, we're just using one verse. He received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is representing our one true God and there he is in gold right there. Fall down and worship him. Worship him. This is him. Now, that's a sad scene that's happening there. That's what happened in the desert. Now, Paul is illustrating this to them. They know this story. The Corinthians were familiar to idols. I mean, real physical idols, weren't they? In Corinth, you have the temple. 
Of course, in the Greek gods, uh, goddesses, Aphrodites, and the, the temple is up there on the Acro-Corinth overlooking the whole city. There are literally thousands of temple prostitutes and priests and such. And uh, what a terrible spectacle that was going on there. Now, the Christians in Corinth had become overconfident in their Christian faith. They believed they could still go to pagan activities and maybe even partake of uh, some of the foods that they had and flaunt it before other ones. And so they were doing that and they were becoming very spiritually harmed, everybody in the church. Now, this is the sin of all sins because the first two commandments are focused on God and loving God, really. You know, He's the one true God. All worship is to go to Him. We are to love Him, uh, and there is to be no images made of God. And so, that's why those first two commandments are hinging upon, if you're not worshiping God, what are you worshiping? Idols. If you don't have your focus on Him, if we don't devote our whole selves... All of our time to who God is and what He's about, then you know what we're doing? We're devoting our lives to something else. Now, I'm not saying that you have to be in the Bible 24 hours a day or being, be praying 24 hours a day in that sense, uh, but we are saying to recognize the very presence of God constantly in everything that we do because everything that we do is not secular. It is all a part of our lives and our walk, isn't it? Those things can be really good. But if we separate God from those things, now when those things take our time, they are now idols. And this is what uh, I think Paul can take this up to our present time. Obviously, we don't have those idols like they did, golden idols in front of them. uh, But we can definitely understand that uh, anything else other than God is an idol. So out of this sin comes countless other sins. And that's why Paul is is using this idolatry right off the bat. It holds something else actually above God. Uh, It's the highest regard. Whatever takes most of your time. Whatever is taking your time that is not giving glory to God. what What do you ascribe worth to? Worship is that in itself. When we worship God and we worship Him all day long, really that's what it's about when we live our lives for Him. We're ascribing worthship. We're ascribing His... He is worthy. Now what do we ascribe worth to? What do we most give our time, our money, our energy, our love, our devotion, our hope, our dreams to the things or persons that consume us. What, what, do we, what do we do with that? Well, it should be to the Creator God. That's where it really has to, has to be. We are apt and we can tend to devote ourselves to the created thing rather than the Creator. And once we do that, we have gotten into idolatry. And the, the surprising thing about it is that we don't even recognize that. And that's why in the New Testament so often it talks about idolatry. And you say, we don't have idolatry today. Uh, Yeah, those people, those religious people back then, they had them. We need to smash our idols, don't we? Bob, what's the name of that website? It's not smashing our... Exposing. Exposing our idols. Yeah, like every once in a while if you get a chance, go on the computer and uh, go on, if you've got Facebook, right? It has to be Facebook though. But uh, exposing our idols. Somebody else uh, I think has one called smashing our idols. 
You know, and the same same line of thinking there. Yeah. Um, idolatry can be uh, having vintage cars, a collection. Anything wrong with those? No. But if we turn our attention to that, and that's what we're about, and that's what we identify with, then that's our idol. Anything, uh, any that's collectibles, hobbies. Hobbies can become idols. Oh, trying to keep a spotless lawn can be idolatry. I don't, by far, have a spotless lawn. Never have, probably never will. I'd love to have that, but it just doesn't happen. Uh, but I have all sorts of enemies that would like to tear up my lawn and sometimes I get consumed with and I might take a lot of my time dealing with these things that are underneath the ground that start poking the dirt up and all of a sudden that's all you see in the yard. And, it's, and all of a sudden I can be consumed with that thought and it takes my thought off of where I need to be and although maybe something has to be done, where do you draw the line? Well, not so sure sometimes, but if, if that's what you get consumed with, pets can be idols. Our education can be idols. Personal appearance can be so much that we're so consumed with that can be an idol. Sports definitely can be an, uh, an idol. And I think that's one of the biggest idols in all of our country today is sports. I'm trying to cut back. I've done pretty well. I don't know if I've even watched a, a whole football game. I'm not saying that that's what, if you're unbiblical or unspiritual if you watch a full football game. But, um, you know, I, I still enjoy that. But it's not my life anymore. I don't know if Carolyn's disagreeing with that. I don't know. <laughs> What time is the football game on today with the Rams? Oh. It can be food. Oh, no. Okay, Dennis, you're getting a little close here now. Food can be an idol. Can it not? Our bellies, our appetites can be an idol. Hey, I'm striking at myself here. Got to be careful with that. Entertainment can be an idol. Hey, that was... That can, that can be... Bands. Oh, man, you know. The, how much time did I spend in my own bands as well as following other bands and they became my idol and I wanted to be like this guy and that guy and I want to sound like this guy and you know idolatry I was I was I was an idol worshiper before the Lord got me into his word and you know what I still battle with it just being honest don't want to let you down but my flesh would still like to worship idols although my spirit man says no way I don't want to do that I don't want to become disqualified It's hard. It's a hard walk. It's a hard battle. There's a lot of things out there offered to us today. And of course we know the internet. Boy, can that be an idol? Yeah. Email. You've got to take care of all the email. Email, email, email. Oh, it's on down the list. You keep scrolling on down. Oh no, I've got pages of email. And all of a sudden you're going click, 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 click. Delete, delete, delete. Oh, I've got to check this one out. And all of a sudden it consumes the time. And, of course, your Facebook. Good things. Perfectly good things. They, they um, create an atmosphere where you glorify God and put up verses in Scripture and quotes and all sorts of things about God. All these are good things. I'm not, I haven't said a bad thing in here. I haven't talked about like uh, drugs and drinking, which I don't think any of us really struggle with that. Not that I know of. But how about watching TV? Oh, Dennis, you're getting close here again. Can that be an idol? Sure, can be. Do we have to get rid of our TVs? Didn't say that, did I? I haven't got rid of my TV. Some people do. And that can be a good thing. 
when it's bad is whenever they tell everybody else that they have to get rid of their TVs. You can use your TV for an instrument of righteousness or an instrument of sin. Movies. There again, you know, these are freedoms. But don't let them be abused in a sense that cause stumbling blocks. Video games. There we go. Can video games become idols? Yeah, they can. Boy, we're just striking here now. Right at, what's your idol? I don't know. I'm not even going to mention it. I don't have to. All I have to do is throw out some of these practical things and say, okay, let God deal with you there because I have trouble enough with my own struggles of what's my idols. Some I can recognize and some I can't because I'm still in the flesh. I wish I could say I have no trouble, I have no battle with any of this and uh, listen, I'm up here on a pedestal and I don't have to deal with that anymore. I'm cool. <laughs> That's not the case. And anybody that says that, I really have a little trouble with. Because it says they are... They have reached their goal. They might as well be glorified. How much time do we give to these things? You know what? Anything wrong with success? No. What kind of success though? Success. Drivenness. I like to be driven. You guys like to be driven? To have that... Maybe sometimes, you know, no, I'd rather just lay down and go to sleep. <laughs> careers. Can careers be an idol? Is career a good thing? Yeah. I mean, we're supposed to work. Whatever that may be. Advertising on TV. Are you sad? Are you depressed? Are you alone? Have you seen those commercials a lot? Boy, they're on there all the time. I wonder why they do that. Well, there's probably a lot of truth to it. They're they're sad and depressed because they're not at where Hollywood is at. And all the TV. And you look at those guys. Man, look look at the way they look. They're perfect. I mean, everything they do is just, we know better. We know they're not perfect at all. All I have to do is find out that those Hollywood shows that they have, Entertainment Tonight or whatever, just tells on them and shows that they're not perfect. They're not even close to perfect. And if they're not Christians, we know that. Why would I want to model my life after them? But you know what? Those TV commercial people, they're offering something. They offer a Savior for people. If you take this drug, you will be much better. You will feel good. People are in despair and the media comes along and says, we have a solution. You just buy this product. You'll be okay. You will be comforted. That's the Savior to many people. Where do you run for comfort? Do you run, uh, run to Christ for comfort? Do you do you complain? Anybody here complain? You don't have to put your hands up. Anybody get angry here? Well, do you get angry at people you're around? Maybe those are your idols. Maybe you're getting angry at people that are around you because you expect them to meet your expectations of 100%. Are you angry at them? Well, maybe that's your idol. That's where you find your satisfaction when everybody is living up to your expectation. They have just made an idol. Do you see how easy it is to get into idolatry and not even know it? Complaining. Oh, that can tip what your idol is. You say, well, no, it's just complaining. And, and that sin is listed later. Uh, well, it stems from idolatry. Uh, getting angry can show your idol. Let's say you're in traffic. Someone has just cut you off, and that happens all the time. 
And I don't make Rosh Hashanah where it says, oh, I don't have any trouble with this sin. <laughs> I will be, right? Somebody just cut you off and you could have ran into them. You could have gone into the ditch. And you get angry at them. You start yelling at them in the car only if you could get out there and really tell them what you say. You're saying things in that car that nobody could imagine that you would ever do. As a matter of fact, you might even be using hand gestures. And I hope you're not. <laughs> All of this could be happening. Why am I so angry, you ask after that? Well, you know what your idol is? Respect. You have an idolatry or an idolatrous idea in the sense that you expect everybody out there to respect you, no matter what. When they don't treat you the way that you think you ought to be treated, you are disrespected and you're going to let them know about it. And if they don't hear you, okay, well, at least you let it out, right? What angers you? Is it because someone says something bad about you? And you want people to say nice things about you and they don't. What makes you happy? What makes you happy? Good relationships? Good thing. Family? Does family make you happy? That's good. What makes you happiest? Is it the family? Is it the relationships? Is it those other things? If that's what makes you happy and that's what your life is driven for, you are in idolatry. If it's not the Lord, then it's all other things. And they are idols. Is family your idol? Uh, it's easy to love your kids more than God even. Can you believe that? Or your husband, wife. You can make them your idols because they meet your expectations. They really don't. <laughs> Things that we love can enslave us and we can go back into bondage. What's your idol? Your wife, your husband, your child, your friend. Your reputation. Your job. Your success. What you love. Your self-image. Can those things be idols? You know what we're saying? We're saying everything. All the good things can be what? Idols. That's amazing. It's as bad. I'm going to extend this on out. It's as bad as making a golden calf. When we are into idolatry. Wow. Now let's look and see what happens with this idolatry. Do not become idolaters as were some of them. Don't be like that. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. When they were doing the idolatry, then they got into what all the other countries had done, what was happening in Egypt, and they got in and ate and drank and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. In one day, 23,000 fell. What? 23,000. That's more than half of Jeff City was just laying out. Their idolatry led right into immorality. Look in Exodus 32.6, just for a moment. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now that's sexual immorality. That was with the golden calf. But we might have a referral here to what's in Numbers 25, Verses 1 and 2, where this happened uh, another time. This is in Moab. 
Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. Moab represents sin against God. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. What? What kind of God is this? Is this the God that you know and I know? Yeah. And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her body. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. And those who died in the plague were 24,000. You can say, yeah, I understand, but Paul said 23,000. What do we do with that? Well, there were probably like a 1,000 more that 23,000 died that very day. That's what he's saying there. And then with that plague that they already had, a 1,000 more died. Probably that's what's going on there. I don't have any trouble with the Word of God and and numbers are uh, not mistakes. It's just uh, different writers are saying the same thing one day and then later on. But uh, my, you think of the idolatry and then the sexual immorality that's happening in Corinth with Aphrodite, the temple prostitutes. It went on and those people had been involved in that And he's saying, you believers here are not any more immune to immorality than the idolatry. You could get into immorality. And and it had happened in the church already. He's already addressed that. That's why in chapter 6, verse 18, he says to flee from what? What does he say? Every sin that that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. So they were they had an issue of sexual immorality. Idolatry and this right there in Corinth. They were to flee from it. Now we move on to First Corinthians ten, verse nine. Nor let us tempt Christ or test Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Now what have we had so far? Idolatry, immorality. Do those things happen in the church today? Yeah. Testing God. Well, it happened back there. Let's turn to Numbers chapter 21, 5 and 6, and I believe this is what Paul is referring to here. By the way, did you know that God never apologizes for His wrath? He doesn't have to apologize. Do you know what we do sometimes? We tend to like to make God look a little better than what we think that uh, He's looking like. 
And if you read this, that God killed these people at one time, you say, boy, he is not very loving. He's not very forgiving at all, is he? Well, he takes people out. And usually it's over a long period of time. It's not because they just did it once, but once is good enough because whenever they know his word and they uh, immediately disobey him, he has the right to do that. And what it's saying is that he is a holy God and he has a right to do that. He did it in Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. They just lied to the Holy Spirit how much they were giving. If they just said, this is what we're going to give, and then gave that, then no, no problem. But they said they were going to give all that, and they wound up keeping some back. Boom. Uh, Ananias is gone, and then just like that, Sapphira's is gone, and God took him out. It shows that he's the same God in the New Testament as the Old Testament, and he never apologizes for his wrath. Because God is perfectly holy. And I'm just amazed that he doesn't take us all out. Because he could very well do it. But I never want to presume on his grace, but I can say, thank you, Lord, for forgiveness and grace, for I know that by myself I, this should happen to me too. Numbers 21, 5 and 6. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Wow! The manna from heaven, and they're calling it, we hate this bread that is worthless. Oh. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. They bit the people. And many of the people of Israel died. Now look at this. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. God wants us to confess our sins, to repent. For we have spoken against the Lord, I guess, and against you. Pray to the Lord that He take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. There's the intercessor. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. We find that in John 3. We find that where the people believed God then, and they were saved. They didn't die. God is gracious. Psalm 78 had something to say about this. It wasn't against God. <laughs> but it showed how where the people were at. Psalm 78, verse 17. But they sinned even more against Him by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. And they tested God in their heart by asking for food of their fancy. Yes, they spoke against God. They said, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? They got tired of the manna. It was fantastic. It was all they needed. And they wanted something. Can God actually do that? Well, evidently, He can't. Look in verse 40. How often they provoked Him in the wilderness and grieved Him in the desert. Yes, again and again they tempted Him. And look at this. They limited the Holy One of Israel. The people were never satisfied. God provided them with everything they needed to have. They questioned God's goodness. 
That's the problem. They wanted more and more spice. They wanted something else. They were looking for something else to please them rather than God Himself. They did not please God. They demanded that He serve them better. And Paul was saying, we are never, ever to test God. No matter how much you say, people will say sometimes, it's a good thing just to let it out and just get mad at God. You know, I don't see anything beneficial out of getting mad at God. I see that God does not like it when He's dishonored. Now granted, sometimes we might get, get mad at God, but be careful what you say. And you don't have an excuse for that because you need to be thinking about how great He is rather than your situation. We see it through Scripture where people tested God and we saw how serious that business is. And not only Ananias and Spires, but in 1 Corinthians 11.30, whenever people were communing together, before they got together, they were doing it in a wrong way. They were discluding people from the communion or beforehand in the love feast. And God did what? Some of them became sick. Others became sick and died. God killed them. God takes everybody out eventually anyway. But sometimes the witness is so much that He says, that's it. You're out of here. We can take God's grace and we can presume upon it and we abuse His grace. But you know there are limits that we don't ever want to cross. And that's what happened in that wilderness. They were daring God to move. Daring Him to move. Calling the shot here. They had an attitude of doubt that God could do that. and they, they craved for something else which was really sinful. Of course, we know this is done today. And the Word of God here is still relevant, isn't it, today? The Corinthians at that time were pushing liberty that they had all the way to the limit, to the max. Right, we've taken an hour already. To finish this section on out. Verse 10 says they complained, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Uh, this was the rebellion of Korah. Uh, the scripture is in number 16, uh, that whole chapter there. God is not ashamed of his wrath. Some of them murmured. They were taken out by the destroyer. That's a, an angel that God had used that killed the firstborn in Egypt. And if you were to look in um, the, the passage there, you'll find out that that was an angel who was a destroyer that took out the firstborn of the Egypt, uh, Egyptians. God sent a plague in this particular occurrence here that killed 14,700 people, as uh, mentioned in, in our numbers. Uh, this is the same angel that uh, slew the firstborn, later on killed 70,000 uh, because of David's census taken in 2 Samuel chapter 24. Uh, in the response to the prayer of Isaiah and Hezekiah, this angel destroyed an entire Assyrian army that was coming upon Jerusalem in 2 Chronicles 32. But God here turns on His own people. Why? Because they were grumbling. And grumbling was a sign that they were dissatisfied with God's sovereignty in their lives. And they were challenging God's wisdom. Dissatisfied with His sovereign will. The Israelites, oh, they're terrible people. Now all you have to start thinking is, what if you were out on a 40-year backpacking trip 
And there was a lack of food and a little bit of a water shortage sometimes. And you don't like the quail. There'd probably be a complaint. Somebody would probably complain. And uh, my idea is probably there'd be more than just somebody. More than just one or two. So before we shun the Israelites, how often do we complain? Application, and I have to do this quickly, I'm sorry. Verse 11, Now all these things happened to them as examples. They were written for our admonition, for our warning. Right here today. They were written for us. This is a valuable lesson. They admonish us. They warn us. They were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. That extends over any time period. But you know what? We see grace here. You say, boy, Dennis, this is a time of judgment and wrath here. But, you know, we have to preach grace. If we don't put grace up with that, we all leave out of here just seeing God as a holy God and a wrathful God, and we can't leave that hanging, can we? Because in verse 12, He always does this. This is how good He really is. Look at His goodness. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. There's a warning, right? No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. Have you ever heard that one? How many of you here have memorized that and used that all your life? I'm sure that most of us have. A valuable lesson. You know what we're saying here? This is a timeless principle. Look at Proverbs 16.18 and saying the same thing. You know, it's, it's easy to be more confident in ourselves sometimes than it is being confident in God. We can overrate ourselves in our thinking. And sometimes we think we're doing better spiritually than we really are. I'm doing really good now. Remember the church at Laodicea? Man, they thought they had it all. They were rich and they had this and that. God said, you really have nothing. They were overconfident. Uh, the word of encouragement is that He says, no temptation is overtaking except such as common to man. It's common to everybody. Everybody has tests, temptations, things that are really a struggle. And I want to tell you something. There are going to be people who say, but you don't know my situation. I'll guarantee you, you're going to know somebody that says that. You're probably already thinking that way. I want to tell you that we all have those tests. We all have our lot in life that we struggle against and just tell those people, you know what? You're really not that special. (laughs) That you get this and not everybody else does. It's ridiculous. They say, yeah, but you don't know my background. You don't know what I go through. Well, it says here, all. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. Everybody has their own things that they struggle against. Even the best saint that you could ever think of is susceptible to sin. And that best saint that you think of, your favorite uh, teacher, um, author, whatever, they are susceptible as much as you are and they can fall into sin over a point in time. But you know what? We all go through that. Don't let that person think he's special. You don't know me and what I have to go through. And say, I want to tell you, there are, in my church, there are other people that are struggling just like you are. As a matter of fact, some of them even worse. But I want to tell you, here's what they're doing. But there's always one person that says, yeah, but I can't do that. Well, God says He is faithful. And do you know who controls the level of temptation? 
God does. Did you know He gives that test to you? It's a privilege in a way because that's a test that you really need to get through because you have another test coming that might be a little harder. You might have another thing that comes along. Your temptation is limited by God Himself. He's not going to take it so far that you can't go through it. And I've seen some people, I don't understand how far they've gone through. They've gone through one thing after another after another. It can be death uh, to their family members and all sorts of health problems one after another. It goes on and it just seems like it's endless. And I, I say to myself, how could I ever get through that? And maybe I wasn't designed for that and couldn't. I don't know. I don't know how God does this, but He has the perfect temperature that He brings it on. And some of those people come out of those, and I'll tell you what, they are on fire for the Lord. But they had to go through some dark times. We all have to say to them that we are not talking about ourselves here. They said, but you don't know me. Well, I'll tell you what, I'd like to say this, but I don't. You are not what it's about. We are talking about God here and you have the wrong focus. And I have said that whenever I've heard it over and over. I try to be gracious, but after I keep hearing it, I'm going to focus on God and say, it's not about you, I'm sorry. It's all about God's glory and He's doing this. Let's be truthful about it. I'm not going to lie and say, oh, it's too bad that this happened. I'm sure God doesn't want you to be here. Oh, let's, let's see if we can get you out of this. If I did that, it would be a flat-out lie. Because verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. What's happening here? God will never put on your plate any more than you can handle. He's going to have it exactly the way that He wants. If you believe in a sovereign God, we're talking about God here and not your circumstance. And you know what? Endurance is the last sentence here that you may be able to bear it. Endurance is likely the way out to endure through it. So, oh, if I could only get out of this. The trial doesn't usually go away. But God's grace And there we go, folks. Here's the promise of it. It's said that God is faithful. And here's the good news. God's grace allows us to go through it. By God's grace, we can handle it. He promises to give us that grace, and He always does. He is faithful. Finally, the sun came out. I kept reading this and reading this, and I go, oh my, this is so dark, and uh, the people are going to get scared to death. And you know what? The sun just came out. Broke out. Clouds went. Blue sky. And it says God is faithful. God is gracious. He gives everything that we need. And you know what? Say, here's how we put this into application. Three points and it's going to be really quick. You ready? Hang on. Number one, be praying. And I'm sure you are. And say, I'm tired of praying. It's not working. Keep praying. Number two, trust. By, we live by faith and not by sight. No matter what it looks like, just keep on. So pray, keep trusting. Where do you put your focus at? Christ. Put it on the cross. Put it on what He did. Look, God is faithful. The focus should be there, not yourselves, not where you're at. Let's pray.